Welcome to Checking In, a weekly podcast from Hotel Owner, the UK's trusted source of hotel industry news and analysis. Each week we meet a new guest and learn their story, all the highs and lows, triumphs and disasters they've faced and how they got through to the other side. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you listen to. To get more industry insight, head to hotelowner.co.uk and subscribe for unlimited access. If you're interested in sponsoring episodes of the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at hotelowner.co.uk. Welcome to Checking In. This week, we're joined by James Horne, Food and Beverage Director at the Cumberland in London. James talks about his early career in New York City, what it's like to work alongside such legends as Wolfgang Puck his experience of reimagining food and beverage offerings for hotels, and what makes for a successful F&B offering for your site. Welcome, James. Thank you so much for joining us. Nice to be here. I believe you actually began your hospitality career in the States. Can you tell us a bit about how you first got into hospitality and in some of the early roles? Sure. Uh, it started off pretty naturally. Um, my family's been in the business since the 30s um, in, in New Jersey. So my great-grandfather started uh, a 12-by-9-foot hot dog stand in 1932. Uh, he went to the Cornell Hotel School, and then the Great Recession happened, so he decided to sort of go off on his own. Um, that one location of the, of the hot dog stand eventually grew into a restaurant that we had in the family for about 85 years. So his brothers took it over, my dad and his brothers took it over, and then my generation sort of... Some of us dabbled, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I grew up like almost literally in it, like started working when I was nine or 10 years old and, um, I decided to go for it. Um, after a couple of other attempts to not work in food and beverage, uh, in my first years of university, but, uh, settled in and have made it a career. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think that's, that sort of, a uh, love for hospitality is something that runs in the family or, or do you think you sort of learned your love from it from your family members around you? I think in the beginning, um, it probably was just wanting to be as good as my dad and his brothers and grandpa, just because they did it. Like you kind of naturally think you have to, Mm. you're not really aware that, I mean, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to do something different, but I think, you know, I majored in criminal justice for two years, wanting to be like a lawyer or, um, in the FBI or something of that sort. And Mm. then just would always go out to dinner and realize I just love food so much and went back and, and switched. So it is, the, it's an intimidating industry and to get into it, you know, meet people start out from all different sides from intentionally starting, whether it's through uni or through just working as a kid or, you know, you're doing it by an accident to support another career. But mm. um, yeah, all walks of life, all different people. And I think rarely you get through to the other side as I like to call it. But um, yeah, I just think it's the opportunities were there with me. I just happened to work in one my whole life. So I guess easier decision to keep going. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, and yeah, can you tell us a bit about some of your early roles? I I know you were a beverage manager in, in Washington DC, um, and yeah, some of those first roles that you had and, and what you sort of learned from those. So yeah, um, after university, I moved down to um, like the DC Virginia area, um, and I was a um, they called it a kitchen manager. I thought it was more of a like a sous chef position, so I was working back of house. And I just like, didn't vibe with the feel of the company. It was very corporate. So mm. I also saw how much more money the people in front of the house were making. Um, so I got, actually got fired from that job um, after about six weeks, six weeks out of college and kind of was like, oh boy, um, <laughs> what am I supposed to do? So I think I had, I got an option to be like a head chef at a pub, like a bar pub in Washington, which was really cool offer to be like a 22 year old and do that. 
then an offer to be a front of house manager at a restaurant owned by Jose Andreas, who's now, you know, global, you know, Nobel mm. Prize nominated chef. And I liked the chef idea, but then I like somehow was just barely smart enough to be like, no, 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 like <laughs> that is crazy. And like you, again, you'd find yourself where you are right now, go to this big group, learn how to be on the front of the house side. Um, and I eventually gravitated towards the beverage side of that restaurant. And um, yeah, I mean, it's a very important chef and restaurant in, in Washington and um, turned out to be a very good decision that I was able to make early. because so I think I would have probably made it later but it would have put me behind a bit from where I am now. Right, right. Um, and in those early roles, uh, when you were sort of finding your uh, feet in the beverage side of things, um, are, are there any standout mentors or, or people that um, stood out to you at that time who, who sort of maybe taught you lessons that you uh, carry to this day? Um, I mean, the first would be like, my dad would always teach me, I learned hard work from him, just watching him, like he'd be not around during Christmas and Thanksgiving and always at work at night. And so I just see, I think you just, you see that and it becomes something that you think is like, okay and normal. So in order to succeed early on, you have to be willing to sacrifice a lot of that stuff in food and beverage, like be there for the holidays and the weekends and mm. kind of separates, you know, some people, you know, if you're willing to do that upfront, you can kind of advance a lot quicker. As far as beverage, um, I just gravitated towards it because it was the next new thing I didn't know about. And like wine was cool. This is, this is right. I mean, in terms of like timeline of where beverage is now in restaurants, it was like right when craft beer started like becoming a thing. Mm. And so I did a lot of work with craft beer in that restaurant in Washington was one of the, there's a couple other uh, restaurants doing um, craft beer stuff, but I got really into that. And then I learned that you can take a test and become a certified wine expert. I learned what a sommelier was basically. Um, so I wanted to do that. So I did that. Um, and the restaurant that I worked at was very specific in terms of its cuisine. It was, um, it was called Zaytinia and it was Greek, Lebanese and Turkish, uh, like meze style, but they, we were committed to only serving Greek, Lebanese, Turkish, and like a little bit of Israeli wines. So like wines mm. and cuisine from the Levant, but the restaurant was a $10 million a year restaurant. It was booming. So you'd fight, the bar was always packed and you'd fight people, um, can I have a glass of Malbec? No, we don't have that. Okay, well, <laughs> I'll have a glass of Pinot Noir. No, we don't have that either. Um, you're like, we have Zeno Mavro um, and a, a Certico. They'd be like, what? <laughs> um, I'd always fight the bartenders because they, they would just tell them it's Malbec even though it wasn't. So it was just a weird esoteric thing that I got into, that cuisine. Um, and after a while, I mean, I think it was a year and a half or so, being young, all my friends that graduated, you know, you, you, they call it working in the city, you know, New York. Um, and so we, everyone that graduated that I was friends with, you know, you finish college, then you go work in the city. And I was in a different city where I was having fun, but not in the city that I wanted to. Mm. So um, I had this unique skill set with this cuisine and these wines. And I was 23. And there was a restaurant that the chef of the current restaurant I was at used to always tell me about. It was the only Michelin star Greek restaurant in the country. I just... It just uh, lost, but it, it almost won James Beard, best new restaurant in the country. Um, mm -hmm. It was in midtown Manhattan. It was called Anthos. Um, I wanted to work there. So I went, I didn't know anyone there. So I just went on the website and there was like an info at like web address. And I was like, hey, I'm James. I work at this restaurant. Um, I'd love to like talk to someone about a job. They knew about our restaurant, I think. Um, there's some like meetings between the chefs. Michael Salakis was the chef of the one in, in New York. He became pretty famous. And they got back to me and they're like, yes, we want you to come interview for beverage director. And I was like, oh my God, I don't, 
okay. Uh, so they got me on the train, went up there. Um, I remember, I'll never forget it. They're like, just, we want you to do a stock take, which we call inventory and in the States. And I was like, okay. And so I got there like eight in the morning. They gave me this big list. I think it had 1200 bottles and stuff I've never even seen or heard of. I was like Googling wines all on the train ride. I was like, what is red burgundy? What grape is that? Like, that's how unfamiliar I was, but I knew all about this Greek Lebanese and Turkish wines. So it took me 14 hours to do the, the stock take. Everyone was like, what is this guy doing? I interviewed with the chef and the owner and they both love me and they offered me the job. Amazing. And that was another turning point where I had to be like, okay, am I going to make it through this? And then I think the, the words that we've all uttered at some point, fake it till you make it sort of yeah. come into play. And I sort of tried to do that. And uh, I think again, my work ethic and the fact that I could just spend all day. I mean, I worked Monday through Saturday from about 10 or 11 until about 11 or 12 mm. Sundays off. Um, you know, back then you didn't get any health insurance or, you know, half of my money was paid in cash under the table. So, but those are the things you had to do and be okay with to sort of complete the fake it till you make it process. Um, yeah. And that's where things started to sort of get a little bit more serious and started to grow up a bit. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned some big names in the industry there. I know you've also worked with some people like uh, Wolfgang Puck and, and Stephen Starr, for example. Can you tell us a bit about what, what that was like? Um, right. Well, I should, I should chime in first that none of that would have been possible um, without um, a guy I used to work with and was a partner with. Uh, his name was Mike Isabella. And he was the chef at Zetinia under Jose Andreas. And he was 10 years older than me from New Jersey, kind of like a big brotherish character. I left. He was not happy when I moved to New York. But I always stayed in touch with him, which he'll tell you the story. Like he always was just, what is wrong with this kid? Why is he <laughs> still talking to me? He left the restaurant. Like, I don't know him, but I always just, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just, I just like we had a connection for some reason. And so as I worked through New York, he got more and more famous and was doing really well in DC. And then he wanted to open up his first like solo restaurant. And then he asked me to come on board and be the GM and the partner of that restaurant. So I moved back to DC. Um, and we did really well for a long time. That's where I met my wife in DC. Um, we grew the restaurant group from one restaurant to about six, um, by the time that I invent eventually left. Um, but my wife and I left DC and I sold my shares of that group. Just, we wanted to get back to New York. My wife's from London. We decided if we were going to be in the States it needed to be in a place where we were both supremely happy. And that was New York city. So mm. that experience of being a partner and an operations director for a multi-unit group really helped me get to the next couple steps, which were with some of the names that you mentioned. Um, yeah, I guess towards that trajectory. Um, yeah. So eventually I, I started working, we started planning on moving to London, like very in like the ether, like at some point we're going to do it. Mm. So I was just trying to align myself slowly with experience in like British cuisine or culture. And just, I knew it wasn't going to be for a few years, but just getting out there. So I heard this guy named Jason Atherton, who I never heard of, uh, opened up a restaurant in, um, the addition off of Madison square park, but beautiful location in New York city with a very, very famous, one of the most successful American restaurateurs named Steven Starr. So, um, I'd always kind of wanted to work for Steven um, and the opportunity presented for myself where uh, I left the previous job. So I applied for that job and took over as GM of the clock tower. Um, so Jason, Steven, you know, Ian Schrager was in charge of the addition brand and the Marriott owned it. A ton of, um, <laughs> a lot of people with a lot of very strong opinions. 
Oh. As, as <laughs> yeah. you can imagine, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like how I thought about, thought about that for a second before I said what <laughs> I, <laughs> um, Yeah, I mean, that company, they're very successful. There's not much you can say, you know, um, besides that they do a good job. It wasn't the exact right fit for me and my priorities at the time for work-life balance, I would say. Mm. But it did well. I mean, we got the first, we got a Michelin star, so we earned that from going from none to one. So that's, I guess, always a, a good testament. Um, yeah, it was Steven's first and Jason's first in America, so that was really, really well done. Um, and then, yeah, we just had differences of opinions in some things, and uh, I had a lot of connections with Wolfgang's group because we were I was really good friends with a lot of his chefs and, and operators. Uh, he had a big base in D.C., and they needed a new team to come take over or a new operator to take over the restaurants in the four seasons they just opened. And with the success of me at the clock tower and knowing the groups that I had and the people connected with Wolfgang, it was just a, a made sense to transition um, from one to another. And then I worked with, with and for Wolf for, uh, for many years. And that was an amazing experience. He, he's for anyone that I've worked with professionally, like he's by far, I mean, there's a reason he's a legend, you know, he yeah. just does everything the right way. He's been, going for who knows how long, 45, 50 years mm. or so, um, more energy than, more energy than me. Um, I'm probably a little bit less than half of his age, but like an inspiration in terms of hospitality and food and how to treat guests. And, and it was amazing experience working there and working for him. You know, when he would show up, he'd come in at seven in the morning. He'd want to sit and have breakfast, breakfast with you. Um, be on the floor taking pictures unannounced, just hello, everybody. <laughs> Would you like a picture? And at, some people are, who, who is this? <laughs> like it was Wolfgang Puck. Um, and then you just sit and d eat dinner with him and drink wine till three in the morning. And then they repeat that every day he's there. And then you're like, <sighs> I'm going <laughs> to fall asleep while I'm at work. I would tell my wife those days, I'm like, Wolfgang's in town. She's like, all right, I'll see you in a couple of days. <laughs> um, but there's not many people that you would want to and would do that for. And him, I always would because it was just a pleasure to hear the stories and um, you know, with invaluable learning experience. Um, so yeah, cheers to him. Yeah. Great man. Yeah. Well, like you say, I guess there's a reason he's a, such a legend, um, in the industry. Um, you mentioned the four seasons. So was that your first, uh, step into working within a hotel? The uh, the space? previous was at the at the edition. Oh, so, right. So that was the first, um, operating food service establishments in a hotel for me. Um, New York can be tricky because there's lots of unions involved, which mm -hmm. they don't have here for the most part, um, the way that they do in the States. But, um, yeah, the Four Seasons was the new Four Seasons in the financial district, not the old famous one in Midtown. It was about a three-year-old hotel. Um, it's in unique then, but now pretty common to have a lot of a mix between residences. Well, we, some people call hotel guest residents, but actual residences, people that could own apartments in the hotel and a mix of hotel. I'm not sure what the number was. It's probably two thirds hotel and one third residence. But, um, a lot of the luxury brands realized that a lot of their clientele, um, liked enjoying the amenities that brands like the four seasons and Ritz Carlton provided, but the hotel experience is very informal and transient. Mm. So it's like, Hey, buy a, buy a flat here. You can have four seasons, gym and spa and laundry and room service and stuff, but you actually own this real estate. So, um, obviously they're not cheap, but, yeah. um, cool idea. And so that building was a mix of both. So we, Wolfgang did all the outside food service for it. So the only restaurant in the hotel, a bar, private event space, and then all of their like in-house room service and, um, event food was done, uh, by, um, the four seasons team, which was a, a union. So 
not allowed to really cross over with the unions too much, but um, they mm. actually they actually build it out so like you don't have to see each other, yeah. <laughs> which is interesting, <laughs> but um, for good reason. Not because mm. they're not nice people, but you just don't want to get in trouble with the union. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, and for you, um, was there any sort of noticeable changes from going from restaurants to hotels, or is it more or less sort of the same kind of operations-wise, um, um, would you say? There's, there's certainly a difference. Um, I think the biggest one personally as, a, as a, an employee is that re- restaurant groups and restaurants in general, the ceiling is pretty low in terms of how you can advance. Um, even large restaurant groups usually have like a CEO and maybe a couple, maybe one or two ops directors, and then a bunch of GMs and chefs. Um, hotels, you know, especially ones with huge support and publicly traded brands, you know, they have extremely large infrastructure above, which provide the opportunity for advancement of people like me and, and, and chefs that go through those ranks um, where we can aspire to be more than just a chef or a GM or something of that sort. So I think that was the first attraction looking long term at the long path of my career. Like how, how can I not be in a restaurant 60 hours a week and not do some of the things on a daily basis that, you know, become arduous as you have a family and reprioritize some things. So I think hotels is a very normal path for a restaurant person that realizes that in order for the grass to be greener, you need to sort of get into a situation that allows more obvious growth than just possibly an accidental, ooh, this person just happens to retire or happens to leave or something. So I think that was my intent. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's what's brought me to, we moved to England. Unfortunately, our last day in our flat in New York, our apartment in New York was February 28th, 2020, uh, <laughs> oh no. which was like six months planning in advance to move at that date. And then remember we had a going away party we were going to do for ourselves at March 3rd and like everyone canceled their RSVP because of this weird like Chinese sickness that started and which we now know is COVID. So it put us in a really tough spot in terms of how we planned the move to England. Um, my son was one and a half then. Um, he already had two passports, my wife, English passport. So they left right away to go to our uh, my in-laws flat in, in London. And I kind of was just like in limbo for seven months. So I learned to play a lot of golf. I played a lot of golf, not very well, which I still do today, <laughs> like most golfers. My wife always asked, do you play once a week? But you, last time I saw you, you look the same as the first time, I guess. <laughs> That's the tricky game. Um, but yeah, I got here and eventually things, I mean, it took a long time for things to like, quote unquote, normalize. I don't think they, they really still haven't. They're, we refer to it as the new normal. So everyone's sort of still learning. But um, yeah, yeah, COVID certainly didn't help the move, but it was time. Trial care, cost of living. Surprisingly, London is inexpensive relatively compared to New York. Mm. Um, but it just it made sense at that moment. And we've been here for over three years. Right. Right. Um, and sort of speaking of the difference between New York and London, it, within hospitality, did you notice any sort of shift in cultures working between both countries or is it more or less an even keel? No, it's definitely massive. Um, there's nothing right or wrong about either side either. Um, it's just expectations are different on both sides. Um, they're met the same way on both sides, but they're certainly not the same. Um, I would say like service, like you sit in a restaurant and like, I would say generally you get what I would consider better service in the States, not because it's better people, but because they're 
they're directly motivated by money, by tips. Yeah. Um, and they are compensated extremely well, especially in a big city where I'm sure if you've been there or anywhere in America, you know, you're paying, if, it's, if your bill's $100, you know, you're adding most places 8% tax, which is included here. And then you're adding what now, unfortunately, I think is 20, puts 22% in gratuity. So, um, and theoretically, the, the staff should have the ability to determine what um, level of gratuity you leave. So if it's, if it's shit, you have to leave 15%. Um, that's like an insult, which just doesn't make sense because why are you paying someone 15% of $100 for doing a shit job? But if it's great, they're going to expect, you know, 25%. Mm. Um, and then it makes the servers and everything more interactive and more chatty. And, you know, you feel like you get to know them and it's, you know, you feel like, oh, that was just so fun. You, they always say you go for the food and come back for the service. And I think in England and London, it's a bit more transactionary, but I think the expectation is that as well. So I can't say it's worse, but you don't expect that over the top service because um, the people and the staff majority aren't motivated by doing more than like their guaranteed pay. When you do find restaurants with great service, it's a place, it, those are places you should go to all the time because they're mm -hmm. sort of few and far between um, the neighborhood spots where you get to know people. But that was the biggest difference in adapting to expectation of like of that staff performance, but I caught on pretty quickly. Also pay. In the U.S. we had like overtime, um, both on a daily and weekly basis where you get paid time and a half um, if you're an hourly employee. doesn't exist here. makes managing labor such... An easier task here. Um, everyone right. just gets paid X over X amount of hours per week. Um, you know, to monitor things as closely. But like I said, then their sort of performance and their baseline of performance is just the same. So that was the biggest thing I think. Mm. Um, and I'm, I, I'll never like directly knock, especially on a podcast, British <laughs> British food. I've seen it from the past ten years that I've been coming with my wife and eventually moving here make huge leaps. Um, mm. I'm also comparing it to what I consider, and a lot of people consider, like the culinary capital of the world at, in some levels in New York. So um, I appreciate a lot of the advances that they've made, um, but there's just, there's less people, um, there's less motivation, I think, to have to do well. Like New York is super competitive. You could be the hottest restaurant in the city, and then three months later, you find out it's closed, and you're like, whoa. So mm. um, those are the big differences, I would say. But like, there's nothing, I'll say it again, there's nothing wrong with either side. There's different and they're acceptably different. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so after uh, coming to London, I know uh, one of the roles you had was a director of food and beverage at Ennismore, um, if that's correct. And I, I know you helped revamp the uh, F&B programs at the Hoxton um, back in Oregon. Um, I, so I just wanted to, kind of get into what goes into how do you approach revamping that um that offering for hotels what, what are your sort of first steps well the easiest part is that if you're put in that position things are usually starting at the bottom of the barrel so right it can only go get better and it can only go up so you're unless you really don't know what you're doing you're gonna probably turn out to be looking pretty good um the first thing you have to do is obviously you have to identify all the reasons why things have failed previously um, Portland. So I, I was on a contract. I have a small consulting company, which is just myself, but, um, I'll, I'll do occasional contracts, um, in terms for consulting and service or menus or, or hiring uh, things of that sort. So this was a contract with Ennismore. Um, Portland is a very interesting place. Um, it's not good. Um, 
yeah, it's it's been just completely changed since um, COVID and a lot of the riots, uh, a lot of the choices they've made in how to you know run the city. It's I mean, there's nothing wrong with being liberal in any sense, really, but um, some of the decisions that they've made to I mean, it's it's a it's a free use state, so there's every drug is decriminalized. Um, they don't really mind, you know, people living in tents on the sidewalks in front of you know large businesses, or you know, it's just very very wild west at the moment, and nothing's really changing it. Mm. So obviously, that's going to limit businesses from moving in, tourists from coming, people from staying in hotels in somewhat questionable neighborhoods, which the Hoxton in Portland is. It's an old city, which is or old town. Um, so the, the the obstacles there were just like, wow, okay. <laughs> Couldn't really be more obvious. Um, so trying to combat that when your occupancy is an issue as well, a hotel re- relies on a lot of um, its internal residents and guests to provide the business to succeed. A lot of people stay at hotels, but you like to stay there, then go out other places, then come back and go to sleep. doesn't attract very many people to dine in the restaurants unless it's mm, like a, a famous chef has the restaurant inside or has Michelin star or something. So when you have no people in the city, no tourism, but you have a hotel, riddle me that, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is sort of why it got to the place that it was. So in that experience, basically, it's identifying what the possibilities are and being realistic with it and trying to get the system set up to where it could survive. And then in Portland specifically, it's relying on outside factors to revive the city, which then theoretically would revive the influx of tourists and people, and then the business levels of the hotel would go up and everything would be, be better. So um, I wish them the best of luck, but that was a tough project. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, it sounds like difficult circumstances. Um, that aside, is there sort of an enjoyment in, in building up um, that sort of offering from sort of the ground base, so to speak? Is it sort of yeah. a creativity? It's, it's good when you, do, when you do it with people that trust you, um, mm. which I'd say for the most part, that contract with Hoxton, there was there was um, a good relationship. Um, quickly, if it's not, you really you really realize that you're just going to be micromanaged to death, and you're going to leave the person that put this restaurant or or food and beverage program into the position that it is where it needs help. Well, it'll ultimately be the same when you leave because that person is too involved. Um, but yeah, the being able to see the, the the success and the positive results from something like that. I think in, in all in all aspects of in the professional workplace is always rewarding, but it's one of the things that I think a lot of I mean myself included for sure, um, but a lot of chefs and like mixologists and things of that sort we crave like um, like crave instant feedback. Mm. And if a chef cooks something and he looks out and the people say thank you, chef, that was amazing, like they get it, and like they're like they're like, their energy level goes up. And same yeah. thing with bar guys or managers. Or in a lot of industries, like, you know, you might work on a project for, I mean, I can't speak on most because I've never done anything else, but, you know, I would assume the feedback isn't so often, whether negative or positive, and you kind of are left to your own laurels a bit about how well or poorly you're doing. And hopefully it's good, but, you know, we crave this constant, you're doing well, you're doing poorly. And for me personally, it's great because I'm, I'm pretty black and white and pretty stone-faced. So I like both negative and positive feedback because it makes you better either way, but I think that's one thing that people get involved in food and beverage. So yeah, going into a program that you're allowed to really get your hands into and then see the results um, is like obviously like a, a nice a nice thing to see like a tangible result in front yeah. of your face. Yeah. Um, and just bringing us to the present day, I know you're now at the Cumberland. 
Can you tell us a bit about your sort of day-to-day responsibilities as your role as Food and Beverage Director? Yeah, um, so the Cumberland is um, an amazing hotel right off Marble Arch. It's been there for a long time. Um, for a while, it changed to the Hard Rock Hotel and had the, hard, the bigger Hard Rock ca- Cafe inside. But we recently underwent a rebrand in, in the spring, um, which went back to the Cumberland, and the restaurant inside is called Sound Cafe. And we have the Sound Sports Bar, the Sound Bar, so very similar thematically. Um, music and entertainment driven, a fun place to work, um, a lot of bright, shiny things, a lot of music memorabilia. So sort of trying to create our own version of the hard rock without uh, their involvement. Uh, my day-to-day is those three food and beverage outlets upstairs, which seat somewhere north of 400 people. Um, let's see what else we got. We have, we have a small Costa coffee shop upstairs, which we oversee. Downstairs there are is a um, 400 cover breakfast room where we do just what you would think, continental buffet breakfast, omelet stations, between four and thousand covers per day. Um, we have a room called the arena, which is like a 400 seat miniature arena with a stage. And then about 18 various sized conference rooms where we do, you know, board style meetings or trainings of, you know, whatever people rent out for their companies and holiday parties and things of that sort. So all that falls under the uh, F&B uh, director role, which is my position. And then I'm also now very involved with the entertainment factor. So I've gotten uh, asked to oversee and work with um, our, we call him the Vibe Director, which is the coolest title of all time. Um, <laughs> yeah. His name is Julian Gonzalez, awesome guy. Um, he coordinates all the music and all the acts and um, all that stuff. So we've worked together for the past couple of months, but we have like, the same musical interests and we're like similar personalities. So it makes sense for me to get involved in his programming a bit. So that's been really fun. That's another new thing. I get really into and excited about new things that I can add to my day to day and what I've learned yeah. along. So getting music, which was one of my passions involved in my career has been really cool. Yeah. So Cumberland's a cool place. That's awesome. Um, and as a uh, food and beverage director, do you have uh, a lot of autonomy in terms of the direction of the offering or do you have to sort of consult with um, the senior team at the Cumberland? How, how does that work? Um, yeah, I mean, there is there is certainly some of both involved. Um, on a day-to-day, you know, I have the freedom to sort of basically do what is necessary to make guests happy and to make our offering as good as it can. Um, we do luckily have some talented other people in the group. Um, we have a, a head of food and beverage for the company. We have uh, like an exec, a group group head chef. So in terms of food, um, they get very involved um, when we do you know major menu changes. The key with, I mean, consistency is so important in restaurants. Um, you know, if you can get the same thing every time you go to a restaurant, it'll mostly, it'll, it'll highly motivate you to come back unless it's bad all the time then, you know, <laughs> but how many times do you go bad back to a bad restaurant? But you know, your favorite pub, you go there because it's the same guys working, you get the same fish and chips, the same pint, like you kind of forget why you go. And that's really the reason why. So while our menu isn't, you know, avant-garde or fine dining, we want to provide the best like burgers and, and fun bar food that we can. And um, we involve the attention of people like our group head of F&B and our group head chef to make sure what we're doing is seen by multiple sets of eyes so it could be the best it can. So sure, if I called them and was like, hey, I really want to try to do, um, uh, I don't know, like a lobster roll or something on the menu, they'd be like, great idea, let's all do it together. And then they come by and we test out some different things and we work with the, the head chef of the hotel and we do it together. So mm. it's not as autonomous as like a 40-seat a cafe where the chef runs three specials a night. Um, yeah. That's not really the vibe that we go for or the clientele that we attract. But in terms of doing new food and cocktails, um, 
they're definitely open ears. Um, and again, like to involve people that know what they're talking about as well. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned consistency. Just to finish off, um, what other factors, in your opinion, make for a successful restaurant in the hotel? I mean, the most important thing by far is the staff, um, which sometimes goes overlooked. And maybe it's maybe it's a regional thing, but you know, we're we're always tasked as operators to look at the finances and then the, the aesthetics and the lights and the um, the temperature of the room and what the furniture is looking at, looking like, what the website looks like, how much money we're putting into the new walls and carpets and stuff, which all makes part of the, it's all part of the program. But every single thing that I just mentioned is controlled or touched by a, staff, a member of staff. And if you don't take care of those people, or if you don't train them well, or don't show them that you're happy for them to be part of your team, then why would you expect them to perform and contribute in a maximum level? Um, and I think it gets really lost um, on a lot of companies because ultimately they're the ones not only doing everything I just mentioned, but in hotels and restaurants, they're talking to all of your guests and they're cooking all the food. I'm certainly not cooking all the food and talking to all the guests, neither is the hotel GM or anyone else in the, in, in the facility. So pay and invest in them and then they will yield you, yield you positive results. Um, your, your guests and your customers will recognize that. Um, happy people with smiles on their face. It's a, it's a lost art. Um, the intangible things, you know, we always hire for personality and, 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 and inborn care for hospitality because everything else can be taught. I think people get lost in CVs and resumes a bit like that, but you know, invest in people and I think it will yield positive results is what I would say. Hmm. Um, and finally, any future plans for, for sound that you can tell us about any sort of changes or new things on the horizon? We definitely have a lot of cool stuff coming up. Um, yeah, some stuff that um, will reveal itself in time. But um, right now we're looking forward to the winter wonderland season, mm. um, which drives huge business, huge business for us. Um, we've created some really cool programming to not only make our, our location attractive for visitors pre and post winter wonderland, but also the hotel guests. So we're really trying to capture guests to stay within the hotel and people to come before and after. So normally we have live music from seven to nine um, on a daily basis. That's a mix of like an indie artist or, you know, an acoustic trio or jazz night or whatnot. So this Winter Wonderland series, we're, we're pushing for more music starting some nights at five. We're doing it Wednesday through Saturday during all of December. We're going to have a late night DJ mm -hmm. from either nine to 11 or 10 to 12. So people can either just come and party with us or after Winter Wonderland, the party's still going um, and just investing in in sort of extras because all this stuff will be free for guests. You just have to come in mm. and enjoy you know, our food and beverage and you'll be provided with, you know, entertainment that I don't think you'll get anywhere else in London, especially for the cost of, of zero pounds. Yeah. So that's really fun. Um, and you can see all that on uh, the Cumberland's website. We have all the, the music um, schedule posted and things of that sort. So that's fun for the rest of the year. That'll take a lot of our attention. Um, we just, we're about to do an, we have a concert tonight. Um, uh, the Mystery Jets are playing. Oh, um, cool. So that'll be fun. We have an event with Jake Shears coming up, like a QA. and a um, So an opportunity to have a conversation um, and ask some questions that, you know, if you're a fan of his or the Scissor Sisters, I'm sure it'll be yeah. a cool one-off. But we're trying to do things at least once a month that are like bigger and more one-off than our normal programming. But definitely a lot of stuff planned for the end of this year and next year won't be any different. Brilliant. Um, so just to finish off, we'd like to ask some quick fire questions just to get to know more about you. 
could you tell us your favorite book? Favorite book? Probably uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm, classic. Yeah. Uh, I have a son named Atticus, so. Oh. He's not, we, people always assume we name him after Atticus Finch. He's not named after Atticus Finch, but when we were thinking about names, we saw the book some in our house and we're like, oh, Atticus, that's a really good name for a boy. Yeah. And if they want to compare him to Atticus Finch, please go right ahead. He's <laughs> a great, great character. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite film? Uh, favorite movie, I would say Gangs of New York. Probably mm-hmm. not the most common answer, but I love Scorsese. It's easy to pick one of the other ones. Um, but I just love, I love history, especially local history. That period of New York, you know, it was a great story told the way that the culture and politics worked back then and obviously great performances by you know daniel day lewis and, and leo so yeah yeah um, good choice thank you do you have a pet hate yeah i thought about this one before coming um probably uh, sidewalk etiquette mm. um i still can't figure out what side of the sidewalk you're supposed to walk on in <laughs> london because if you drive on the left you should walk on the left if i <laughs> yeah if i not correct. Please correct me. <laughs> no one gave me the correct answer. So, yeah, I mean, in New York, we walk fast and head down and you sort of either pretend or I always have some place to go. Mm. And I think um, here I'm just a little bit more agitated and, you know, ornery. Um, but I'll do stupid things like my wife will always make fun of me where if I see someone walking towards me, like on their phone, completely lackadaisical, like I'm going as close as possible <laughs> before hitting you to like tr- try to teach you a lesson or something, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. But that would make my me a lot happier if people all like, there are arrows everywhere. And yeah, yeah. For phone, for phone lookers, you're on the right lane and for speed walkers, you're here. Uh, it'll never happen, but that's just weird idiosyncrasy, I guess. No, that would make so much sense, but alas. Um, do you have a favorite holiday destination? I think I would have to say so far anywhere, everywhere I've been in Italy. Mm. Um, yeah, just the, the, the people are just, from what I've seen, they're, they're so nice. Um, since we've had uh, a child, they're so nice to him. Like they're just, you bring him into restaurants and they're like, give him a little rub on the head and, you know, always something to eat or play with. Um, obviously huge fan of food and wine and things of that sort. Um, there's the old saying, you can get a better meal at an Italian uh, petrol stop than you can at you know, most restaurants, which is true. So I think anytime we get a chance, uh, Italy in general would be my choice. Mm. Um, who was someone that inspired you growing up? I, I know you mentioned your father before. Um, anyone else? Uh, probably, he'd probably be the most, um, especially in, when you can reflect back as an adult, um, Yeah, I mean, I played a lot of sports. Um, my favorite team, base, I was a baseball player. Um, I liked Derek Jeter a lot, the leadership that he showed for the Yankees. I know it probably sounds arbitrary, uh, even though I did meet him a few times, which is incredibly strange, but very cool. Um, yeah, just someone, he's the captain of the team, leads by example, wins. Like, mm. that's kind of what you want to do. You know, I think everyone should have try to be a leader more of a, than, than a follower in life and try to be successful and at what you do. And I think that's what he did. So I would say that was a good person to look up to a bit as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where do you see yourself in five years time? I think 
definitely still in London. Um, didn't move here to move somewhere else. Um, and I think still thriving with the, the Claremont group, which is the name of the group that owns the Cumberland. Mm. I think um, I really like the culture and the people, which I'm sure from how I just explained, I think that's very important to me. Yeah. Um, the brand is, is strong and it's growing and finding its own identity at the moment. Um, it's still so new. There's plenty of room for growth. Um, all of us, me and the rest of the team and everyone above me is you know really solid and um, share similar ideas of what, should be done next to be running a growing successful hotel company. So, um, yeah, I think that's where hopefully I'll be in the next, in the next five. Mm. And just finally, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I would say don't worry about things you can't control, which is so hard to do. Mm. Um, I can't say that I do it as much as I want to, but definitely more than I used to. And it's helped my decision-making and my mental health and my ability to compartmentalize what is and what is important, what is and what is not important. Um, if something bad happens and it's already over, there's nothing you can do to fix it. Um, if there's something that you want to do but is impossible, then don't worry about it. But find the things that you might have a little bit of an influence on or a lot of influence on and focus on those. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us, James. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Checking In, a weekly podcast from Hotel Owner, the UK's trusted source of hotel industry news and analysis. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you listen to. To get more industry insight, head to hotelowner.co.uk and subscribe for unlimited access. If you're interested in sponsoring episodes of the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at hotelowner.co.uk.